Welcome to our special seven questions edition of How to Win a Campaign. I'm Martin Diego Garcia, and you can find us at CMPWRKSHP on Twitter or at the Campaign Workshop on Instagram. In this series, we're talking to our favorite authors, content creators, and influencers. You can find the seven questions that inspired this conversation at the Campaign Workshop com or in the show notes. And we are super excited to have this episode's guest with us, Delegate Danica Rome, who is a Virginia State Representative for District 13, who also just published a new book. Viking published Burn the Page, a true story of torching doubts, blazing trails, and igniting change that takes us through Danica's story. You may remember Delegate Rome from uh, season three of How to Win a Campaign. Danica made national headlines when, as a transgender former frontwoman of a metal band and political newcomer, she unseated Virginia's most notorious anti-LGBTQ 26-year incumbent, Bob Marshall, as state delegate. She went from a former journalist where she was focused on local issues and went into the state house where she now gets to work on those issues. And Burn the Page takes readers from Danica's lonely and closeted childhood to her position as a rising star in her party that she has changed forever. Burn the Page is an inspiring manifesto of how it's possible to set fire to the stories you do not want to be in anymore, whether they were written by you, about you, or by somebody else, and rewrite your own future, whether that's running for political office, at your job, or in your personal life. Delegate Rome, thank you so much for being here. So when I first received that email on August 4th, 2016, from the 2015 Democratic nominee for the 13th District, Don Shaw, my initial uh, response, and I believe this is a direct quote, was a, and and then I, I walked away from my laptop. And then the next day, I got a phone call from the House Democratic Recruiting Chairman named Belly Rip Sullivan, who said, hey, uh, I heard you'd be a really good candidate for office. Have you considered running? And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> here we go. So I had a little chat with him. And then I uh, met him up in person. And I knew from the first phone call with the top issue I was going to run on, which is fixing Route 28, because my mom had been driving up and down it for 37 years at that point, And uh, her commute was terrible. So I wanted to run and fix that. And meanwhile, my delegate at the time had been elected 13 times and kept introducing the most horrifically anti-LGBTQ piece of legislation, not just in Virginia or the South, but probably the whole country at that point. And so I knew the contrast immediately. And I had spent 10 years as a newspaper reporter at this point. And so, you know, I knew the lay of the land, you know, I knew how to do it. It's just, I had never been on a campaign before because my job as a reporter was to be a neutral, dispassionate third-party observer. But at the beginning of 2016, the House Republicans had introduced nine anti-LGBTQ pieces of legislation. And so I went up to my boss at the Montgomery County Sentinel in Maryland, and I said to Brian Karam, hey, look, I've spent my entire career being a neutral, dispassionate third-party observer. But at the same time, I'm a out trans woman who actually has an ability to navigate the very real politics of what's going on in Richmond around all these anti-LGBTQ pieces of legislation. And I know these people who are there. I want to try to make headwinds, but obviously I'm a reporter. I'm not supposed to be an activist. Am I allowed to go? And he's like, well, just because you became a reporter didn't mean that you gave up your right to redress grievances with your government. (laughs) You know, you still have that constitutional right. So he gave me the same advice pretty much that my former editor, Tara, over at the Gainesville Times, Prince William Times, gave when I was coming out to her. And I told her I wanted to transition on the job, which is 
okay, be smart. Don't do anything stupid. And I got your back. And that was the same thing that Brian told me pretty much. I was just like, yeah, just don't do shit on camera. Go talk to people behind the scenes right now. That's fine. You know, that's what I did. I went down there and I spoke to a lot of legislators who lied to my face. At the same time, we killed all nine bills. We uh, prevented seven of them from even getting out in committee. Another one uh, we ran out the clock on. And the last one, then Governor Terry McCullough vetoed live on air on WTOP. And so... At that point, two of those pieces of legislation came from my now predecessor, then Delegate Marshall. And, you know, knowing that my advocacy helped defeat his bills in Richmond at the time, that was important, but I hadn't done formal organizing. I barely had any LGBTQ friends at that point in my life, to be honest with you. And I knew like one out trans woman in my private life. I decided I wanted to go to an equality principle meeting in 2016, that in February. And that's where I talked to Don Shaw and that's where him and I got to know each other a bit. And I told him I had voted for him the year before in 2015. And he was planning to run again at that point, 2017, before he moved out of the district. And after that conversation, him and I also got to talk to him and be like, hey, look, Democrats won a majority on the Prince William County School Board last year, five to three. What's the point of having a Democratic majority if we're not going to use it? And we should be able to get non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ students and staff uh, in our schools. And so Don and I, from that day, started working for the next 16 months on getting that non-discrimination update done, which would not come to full fruition until a little more than a week after I'm on my primary in 2017, where I went up into the school board and we got that done. And that was with then Delia Marshall in attendance too. So that was kind of fun. <laughs> can you talk a little bit about, and you touched on it here a little bit, but can you talk a little bit about how did you, right, as somebody who just said, I didn't have a ton of organizing experience or sort of advocacy experience or even political relationships. How did you turn what you did have, right? Like your understanding of journalism, your understanding of the lay of the land and use that in your campaigning and use that now as an elected official? It's very simple and campaigns F this up all the time. I speak from vetted facts, things that I know are in fact true and they are not based on just my opinion and how I think the world should be. They are based on vetted facts from neutral dispassionate third-party observers who have checked their sources, who go through an editorial process. And when you write the news for a living for an entire decade, by the time you get through with that, if you're any good at it, you probably know some things about public policy and you probably see people effing up public policy and say, hey, wait a minute, I can do better than this. And I guess there comes a bit of confidence in that. But at the same time, the biggest thing that had changed for me was when I came out, when I was working for the Gainesville Times, Prince William Times in 2015, when we changed my byline in the newspaper after we finally got my name legally changed. So I started that job in 2006. I started therapy in 2012. I started HRT in 2013 and finally got like all of my legal paperwork done by 2015. And that was the time frame. What we agreed at the paper was once all my legal documents were changed, that's when I should change my byline. And we did that. And that was the last act of coming out to a large audience at that point. And so that gave me a very big confidence boost because I come out at home in 2014 on my 30th birthday. Actually, more so than journalism itself, the act of coming out as a trans woman while being a reporter, that gave me the confidence to be able to address issues because I every day I woke up again, you know, and it was like, hey, I'm no one killed me yet. So I guess I can still advocate today. And I can talk about issues and I can be myself today. And 
hey, I woke up again today. Okay, this seems to be a trend. This is good. And this is exceeding expectations so far. I've woken up for a third day in a row now. Neat. I think where you come out on the other end is that you've got the confidence to be willing to make yourself vulnerable enough to be visible. And I spent my entire career having to be a public figure in terms of being a reporter. And so it's not that much of a shift. And the skill sets you develop as a reporter are directly transferable to campaigning. You have to listen. You have to ask questions, listen more, ask more questions. And just like when you're actually in office and you're going through like bill drafts and stuff, you go through an editorial process before you hit publish, just like you do when you're putting a news story together. And there was an editorial in 2017 that had equated me running for office after covering politics as like, imagine if you were a sports reporter covering the Washington Redskins, and now you want to play the game. I was like, okay, um, I think your uh, analogy is wrong, <laughs> like entirely wrong, uh, because you have to have a degree of athletic prowess in order to be able to do that. Campaigning and legislating, you don't have to have athletic prowess. You have to have a sharp mind, and you have to shut the F up and listen to people. That's a very important skill set that you develop as a reporter that is transferable as a legislator that legislators aren't always really good at. And I've been talking a lot. So maybe some of us need to refine those skills a little bit more. But you're totally right. I mean, like that, that is a thing where I think elected officials often go in being like, I, ha I need to have all the answers and therefore I need to sort of suck up all the oxygen in the room where it's actually the exact opposite. Authenticity is a big part of your story and you touch upon in the book, right, like the your fatigue that can result from you living sort of a dual consciousness and in, in which the disparity between like yourself and who you want to be and, and the person who you feel like you publicly present. I mean, like, what does that look like for you in terms of like, is it a challenge for you? Do you feel like it comes with the territory? Like, how do you face that? But like being authentic, knowing that there are some places where you have to present in different ways. Yeah, well, not anymore. I don't. And that's oh. the thing. That's, that's, the, that's the beauty of coming out, right? Is that when you're closeted to some people and you're out to other people, then, you know, and anyone who's had to walk that tightrope, not just trans women, for trans people, especially... I think for us, it's like a lot extra, but for like, you know, just like LGB uh, folks, for example, I think it can be very hard for people to remember who are you out in front of, who are you not out in front of, who has gossiped about you, who you did come out to, who wasn't supposed to, and who do you think that they told and how well do they know? And well, you live that life and you're trying to present as different people, depending on whoever you are, wherever you're your setting is more or less, that is mentally exhausting. And when you have gender dysphoria to go along with it, I've always described gender dysphoria as kind of like having a hand around your throat that slowly closes over time. And when I was 28, I was done. You know, it was just, okay, um, I can't do this anymore. I need help. And I had known that since I was 10 years old. And one of the things that really bothers me is people who say, oh, well, if you're not suicidal, then I guess it doesn't really matter, right? And it's like, you shouldn't have to be suicidal in order to have proper mental and physical health care. And if you suggest otherwise, and I say this very ironically as a trans woman, you're an effing dick and you probably shouldn't be giving advice to other people if you think that suicidality is really the uh, end-all be-all term of what constitutes you having a right to health care that is, you know, appropriate for you. Agreed. Agreed. 
Another thing that I want to sort of touch on is you claim yourself to be a metalhead, right? And you talk about how a lot of your friends prior to being in, in politics were from the, the metal community. Oh my God, you added me. How are they ever going to know? Oh God. Are they ever going to know? How has that and, and sort of rebel persona played out in the way that you lead your life and particularly how you sort of show up in politics? I'm so curious. My primary made me stronger. And no, I'm not going to sing like any affirmation beats for you. I would prefer that if you had a lot of down picking, that would be great. So instead, what I found is that persona, is, it has to be authentic. If you are going to present as someone who you're not in heavy metal, people just call you a poser and they're never going to support your music. They're never going to come to your live shows. They're not going to want to hang around with you and stuff. Same thing in politics. It's no effing different. It's just that there is so much more of people being disingenuous that it's almost gotten to a point where the public can just say like, oh, phony politicians. Politicians are always phony. As opposed to in music, you can just go to another band. There's so many of them, right? You can pick anything that you want from any genre that you want. That's the power of the internet at this point. Whereas for your elected official, you know, like you got one state delegate, you know, you got one state senator. It's a binary choice on a ballot, usually between two or three people, you know, in terms of who's going to represent you. And if they think both y'all are phony, they might not even show up to vote. Or if they think one person is authentic and one person is full of shit, then they're going to probably support the person that offends them less. Or they'll find the person who's full of shit and they'll say like, yeah, but I know you're full of it, but you vote the right way and you defend my values. And so I'm going to allow that indiscretion to just slide and I'm going to vote for you anyway, even though I don't like you. Because I know where you stand, right? Like I know who you are and I know where you stand. Yeah, right. Whereas in my case... I find it much less taxing to just be the same person in front of everyone and not have to deal with that crap again and just be like, yeah, this is who I am. And I'm effective. I've gotten 32 bills signed into law. These are like my bills. I signed a law over my not even three terms in office yet. Look, if you want someone who's effective, who gets stuff done and actually prevents fact-based arguments to you, then I'm the right person for you. And if you want someone who's going to make work to make Virginia a more inclusive commonwealth, that's a good thing as well. I'm on board. And so I think the cynicism that comes in modern American politics is actually something we are warned about as reporters before we get into the newsroom for the first time, which is to be skeptical, not cynical. Because if you're cynical, then you've already created a bias. If you're skeptical, that means you're willing to ask a lot of questions. And that's a lot different. You wrote about being critiqued while running for office, right? And criticized while running for office in a way that you ended up finding empowering and allowed you to understand the like the bearability of criticism. I think as somebody who deals a lot with candidates, right, that is not often the case for most of them. Can you talk a little bit about how your framing of that helped you find strength in that criticism? I also find that if you project a persona just being completely dead inside to people who are awful to you, that you just don't care what they have to say. And then you only care and so that you can raise money off of it. And you are very flagrant and really upfront with that. And I do this a lot. And um, I never have a lack of volume of which to choose from. So what's fascinating is like, you have all these people right now who have latched onto like, you know, the word of the week, which is like, oh my God, we're gonna take back these 1970s homophobic tropes of calling people groomers and pedophiles and start applying it to trans people all over the place. And they just throw those around. So first off, oh, by the way, side note to that, it's one thing to assert your opinion about someone. If you want to say, like, Danny Groom's bad, I'm like, okay, that's fine. Here's your opinion. If you assert 
an action and you ascribe an action to someone and that's not true, that's effing libel. And that's a thing you learn in media law before you become a reporter. Just want to point that out. Of be very careful with the sort of descriptions that you're trying to apply to people because at some point someone's going to call you on your shit. <laughs> and that's not a good place to be. So that said, I have found that being really flip and telling people exactly uh, what I'm going to do when they say terrible things to me and that and like, hey, I'm going to use your comment to raise a lot of money and I'm going to use that money to make payroll. And I just want to let you know, I don't appreciate what you said, but I appreciate that you did say it because it's going to make fundraising this week so much easier. And especially when you did it to me in an even year, because I'm not up until odd years. And you know how hard it is to fundraise when you're up against the congressional candidates? Oh my goodness, you have to have reasons. And I find that your hate speech toward me is really the sort of thing that invigorates my base to want to give money to my campaign. When people are terrible to you, just flip the script on them. Find a way to make it work for you. Remember, especially when you're LGBTQ and they do this, you are a whiteboard in which they are projecting their insecurities and preconceived notions about gender, especially toward, and sexuality as it relates to gender. And if you fall anywhere off of the deviation for how they think femininity is supposed to be portrayed or masculinity is supposed to be portrayed or what constitutes it in the first place, they'll say terrible things about you and maybe even like pick apart your physical flaws or you know, things or insecurities or whatever. But just still remember, it's not about you. It's not about you as a person. It's about their perception of what you're supposed to be. And I find that you can make a lot of money by writing a book, calling out those folks, and you can raise a lot of money for your uh, campaign by also calling out those folks for doing that. And just remember, every time they do it, how do I make that work for me? Don't ever, ever, ever hit into despondency. Remember, despondency doesn't win campaigns. Nihilism doesn't win campaigns. Hard work does. Yep. And that means sometimes you got to be clever and you just flip the script on them. I love that. I love that. So speaking of the book, I mean, I was drawn in by just the table of contents and the names of some of these chapters, which I find hilarious. Um, some of which are vagabond, hack, drunk, right? Is there one particular that that you particularly love uh, and or chapter that you particularly love? What did Stephen Colbert say before? It's like picking your favorite child. Of course you have one, but you don't want to tell the rest of them who it is. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, what I would tell you is that my favorite sub- title so each chapter we use like a noun pretty much to just to describe an attack against me more or less and then we have a reference that either comes from a newspaper article again you know like it's negative about me an editorial or my favorites which were uh, republican attack ads against me or my own opposition research against me too my favorite of all of those was a piece um, that was published in the washington post and it was like two weeks before the 2017 election. So, I mean, like we knew internally at this point that the race was tied at that point, right? And in that uh, that piece, the headline of that Washington Post story is, Marshall ad accuses Rome of, quote, lewd behavior, end of quote, an old video of her band. And my favorite part of that story 
is a quote from uh, John Finley, who is the executive director of the Republican Party at the time, in which he criticized Rome on Wednesday, quote, for being featured in a video where it is clearly implied she performed group oral sex in a public restroom. And so I saw that and I went, oh, time out, time out, implied. <laughs> then I also said, that that's how dare you critique my art? <laughs> <laughs> right and that then so at that point i've now at least turned into a, like gotten a laugh out of it but here's the, the other thing I, I said in the news story that i also go into the chapter here which is like look number one we're talking about a comedy music video that my band was in right or it's like pg-13 maybe right it is nothing like that it is just funny and what i saw in 2017 that i was able to call out was they were trying to manufacture faux outrage about nothing, absolutely nothing, less than a year after they successfully helped elect someone who bragged about sexually assaulting women, bragged about it, helped elect him to the White House. And I was like, hey, excuse me, if that's your bar of entry, then I'm sorry, my comedy music video with my band doesn't quite cut it. And I just figured no one would care and neither did I. And so I used that to even pivot and try to make a point and being like, look at all the terrible policy positions my now predecessor has taken, right? Where he had even called, he had said, at one point, I'm just going to read to you a headline here. GOP congressional candidate Bob Marshall says disabled children are God's punishment for abortion. That's a headline from 2014. And that's a direct quote. And the reason I took the time to even get that in the first place, uh, make sure that I read that correctly for you, is I vet my facts, like I was saying before. Now, that was a policy position someone was taking in relates to legislation. Mine was, how can I make my friends laugh? So I wanted to use the most salacious headline of the entire 2017 campaign, put it as a chapter title, and then say, like, look, the fact that they went after me for stuff like this when their actual positions are so much worse, let's take a moment just as people who are engaged in politics to really reflect on what our public discourse is about, what it means to go through character assassination instead of sticking to issues, and what it means to follow the bright, shiny dot on the wall instead of actually diving in and telling people how you're going to help each other, right? And the TV ads, they started running against me after that. They were like, bad judgment. Stop. Time out. And you get into the silly season of politics, which is what October into November is, and you have a choice to make. And I go into this in the book, which is, are you going to stick to your message and who you are? And this goes beyond politics, by the way. This just goes into life in general. Or are you going to let other people define your narrative? That ad and those attacks in that Washington Post story, those were meant to define my narrative. And I was not going to let them do it. And at the time, I started responding. And someone told me, Danica, first uh, she had said, I'm not going to vote for either of y'all now. And I was like, hey, hold on a second. So I talked to her. She said, Danica, I'm going to vote for you. But look. What got you into this race in the first place? Why did you want to run? I was like, I want to fix Route 28. Then go talk about fixing Route 28. What are you getting into this mess for? And I was like, you know what? You're right. 
every single day for the next two weeks, every day, every public message I had was 28, 28, 28, 28, 28. It's what we closed the campaign on. It's the horse I rode in on and we won. You know, so it's just own your own narrative, tell your own story. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so thank you so much. Congrats on the book. And I cannot wait to continue to see how you are flipping the script on on these folks and defining your own narrative. Delegate Rome, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Martine. And thank you so much for plugging the April 26th debut of Burn the Page out through Viking Books slash PRH, also available in audiobook. <laughs> Absolutely right. So for more information on this topic, check out the blog at thecampaignworkshop.com, where we will have a link to Burn the Page, a true story of torching doubts, blazing trails, and igniting change on sale now. Also available on ebook and audiobook. For more information, you can also visit penguinrandomhouse.com. If you hear this and like these uh, feel free to like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, I'm Martin Diego Garcia, breaking down how to win a campaign. How to win a campaign is Joe Fold, Martin Diego Garcia, Elizabeth Rowe, Dina Castillo, Amanda Ellis, Porobi Saha, and Anna Cruxen. Music by Danielle Pinto. Sound editing by The Sound Sanagoma. Special thanks to the team at the Campaign Workshop. Please review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.